Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Bobby Eaton Show. Yeah. Giving you information you'll want to know. Speaking on issues affecting us all and music for the soul. Yeah. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. Hello, world. Good afternoon. Good evening. Hey, and welcome mm-hmm. to the Bobby Eaton Show. And boy, do we have a great show today. Oh, my goodness. We've got a great show. We've mm-hmm. got Dr. Umar Johnson. Dr. Umar Johnson. You know, he's going to be in the house sharing some knowledge and information that we all need to know. So mm-hmm. we want you guys to stick around uh, for Dr. Umar. That's right. Meanwhile, hey, we're in the home of Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma. where the Black Wall Street massacre took place. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what we want to call it. We don't call it a riot. Right. We call no, it no, a no, massacre. No. And it was actually more than 300 that they claim are deceased. It's more like 3,000. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Oh uh, yeah, and uh, we're still trying to discover some of the mass graves. Yes, because there are graves placed in certain areas of Tulsa, Oklahoma, right. uh, that are un accounted for. That's right. You know, black bodies dumped on mm-hmm. top of each other, yep. and uh, we're the the mayor and a few committee members, black committee members are are searching that out That's for those so details. So the only thing that that yeah. that, that kind of saddens my heart is during that time there is documentation of truckloads of bodies that were dumped um, in the river. Yeah, so the you river, know they exactly. float, and there's no way they'll be they able to account. Yeah. yeah, they can't account for that. But they have a few cemeteries here where they yes. said they, some whites even said when they were young, young. Mm-hmm. they saw those bodies being mm-hmm. dumped in mass mm-hmm. graves. Four and, or five in a in a in a in a in a wood box. Yeah, wood box time, just yeah. dumped on top of each yep, other. That's right. You know, so that's what goes God on. Because, you know, we tell our stories our way that's here right. on the Bobby Eaton Show. That's right. We're not, hey, controlled by any white system or anything mm-hmm. like that as far as our information is concerned. That's right. So we can do it right the here one on and the only, show. Well, not one and only, but one of the few black-owned media services is right here at the Eaton Music. Yeah, Eaton, yeah, Eat Media Eaton Services, Services and right. Bobby Eaton Show and the right. Juice Juice Radio mm-hmm. Show and a lot of people don't know about the well they're finding out about the Juice Radio Show. Yeah, they Juice Radio following. Show. Hey, young people, we we've got an organization of black journalists, youth, mm-hmm. and they come in here about twelve of them. They come in here and do black journalism, and we're going to be taking them to Atlanta, Atlanta, October twenty third through October twenty seventh. We're going to be visiting CNN, Martin Luther King Center, a couple of black radio stations, and Tyler Perry's place. So we're Mm -hmm. going to be there and staying at Airbnb and all of that kind of stuff. Well, via Memphis, right? Yeah, we're going to be in Memphis. Yeah, we're going to stop yeah. through Memphis and go down Bill Street. Yeah. Give them some history, some knowledge, some information, and some good stuff. You that's know, wonderful. that's what they need. But, boy, we got a great show going mm-hmm. on. So This got, man is considered an expert yeah. on the education and mental health of African and African-American children. And that's what I really admire and respect about Dr. Omar uh, Johnson is he is so in tune and focused to our youth yeah. and, and drilling into their heads. Not just that they are somebody, but they will be somebody. They are somebody, and they can make a 
great impact and uh, along with being an asset to society. And I just, I just love that about him. Yeah, yeah, that was this is great. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's great to have him. He's and, been on the show before. Yes, and yeah. he's been here in Tulsa before, and he's coming back to Tulsa, November second. In November second, Greenwood Cultural Center. Center. So right. you don't want to miss that. You'll mm-hmm. want to be there. Yeah. And uh, you'll want to let all of your friends know. But for the meantime, why don't you give us give us a call at six four six seven one six five five two five. That number again. Six four six seven one six Five five two five. Do yeah, what you got to right. do and let all your friends know this is the place you want to be right now for Dr. Umar Johnson. Right, on today's mm-hmm. show. Even yeah. though it's kind of hot. Well, here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, it's still hot. Okay, what's going on with the weather, oh, man. sponsor? Well, we, uh, we're steadfast at 90 degrees right now, but they're speculating that tomorrow we'll wake up with a low of 70 degrees. We'll get to a high of 91, but there may be some participants precipitation in the air. Friday, most definitely more rain, 70 degrees, a high of 85. It's going to be cooling down just a little bit, but that's only momentary because Saturday and Sunday we'll be waking up to the low 70s and Saturday and Sunday under partly cloudy skies. We'll get to about the low to mid 90s. Mm. Same thing with Monday and Tuesday. All uh, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of next week, we'll have partly cloudy skies, no rain, the only rain we're anticipating is tomorrow and Friday, and we'll get to a, a high of 93 after waking up to the low 70s. So it's still going to be pretty pleasant. Still kind of summertime-ish here in the month of September, mm-hmm. but, you know, everybody's waiting for that cold front to come through. They're waiting, aren't they? I ain't. I ain't waiting either, mm-hmm. so, you know, I like goes. it just the way it is. Me too. Me too. <laughs> well, hey, we're going to take a little break. All righty. You know, and uh, we'll be right back with Dr. Umar Johnson. Mm-hmm. He's going to be right here, and uh, here's a little gap band for you. All right. All hometown. Right. Yeah, hometown. Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> Remember that number, 646-716-5525. We want your comments, and we want your questions for Dr. Umar Johnson right here on The Body Eating Show. Let's go.
Oh, yeah, you're listening to the sound of the Gap Band here on the Bobby Eaton Show, where we tell our stories our way. And uh, we're just going to click right on over here. Dr. Umar Johnson, how are we doing today, sir? Was well, sir. Thanks for having me on the show. Great, great. You've been here before, and uh, we had such a great time with a lot of information the last time you was on the show. How you been, man? I've been doing pretty good. Um, I'm happy to announce that we finally purchased uh, two schools with the money that we raised over the past five years. And in Wilmington, Delaware, we now have the Frederick Douglass and Marcus Garvey Academy. Uh, I want to thank the brothers and sisters across uh, the state of Oklahoma, the Midwest, the Central South, because we received a lot of donations from Oklahoma. And I want to send a special thank you to the brothers and sisters in that state for helping us realize our goal. Well, man, that is fantastic, man. Hopefully you can encourage more people uh, to open up schools across this nation. Mm -hmm. There are much needed schools, you know, for our young people. Without question. Um, And although we've acquired the school, we're not done because we have to renovate the school. Uh, There's some Mm -hmm. work that has to be done. We have four buildings, which includes two school buildings, the Honorable Marcus Garvey Building and the Honorable Frederick Douglass Building. We need $1 million to restore the entire campus, all four buildings. But if we can get half of that, we can restore two of the buildings. And if we can get a quarter of that, 250000 we can at least restore the Honorable Marcus Garvey Building, which is the smaller of the two, which would allow us to go ahead and get started with educating our young men next summer of 2020. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. So how can uh, yeah. the listeners donate? Yeah. What process do they need to do in order to donate to your cause over there? Uh, two ways to donate. One is through check or money or the mail-in, which has been the primary way that we've received most of our donations. Uh, we're no longer using uh, the Cash App uh, because there's mm-hmm. been too many problems with the Cash App and not okay. enough answers coming from the Cash App as to why. Uh, people are having so much trouble donating or we're having so much trouble switching the money over to the school account. So the only way to donate now is through mail, check or money order payable to FDMG Academy P.O. Box 9634, Wilmington, Delaware. I repeat, P.O. Box 9634, Wilmington, Delaware, 19809. The other way to donate is to bring your check or money order payable to the FDMG Academy to either the upcoming lecture in Tulsa, Oklahoma, November 2nd at the Greenwood Cultural Center or the very next day, Sunday, November 3rd, in Oklahoma City at the 4502 Event Center. They could bring their donations when they come for the lectures. Mm-hmm. Now, you've been traveling all over this globe, man, and I know you have, your schedule is busy and, and finding time to rest is, can be kind of difficult for you. So how do you handle it, man? I mean, are you just steadily going? Well, I love what I do. That's the one half. And the other half is I believe I was born to do what I'm doing. So because I love what I do, that takes a lot of the stress out of the work. And then also believing that I was born to do what I'm doing takes away from the frustrations and some of the pitfalls that can uh, arise when you're doing this type of work. So that's what keeps me focused. Um, 
You know, I came to consciousness uh, not by an accident, not because I got shut out of corporate America. I came to consciousness as a young child, ever since my first black history class at Meade Elementary School in 18th and Oxford, North Philadelphia. I've never looked back. So I've always mm-hmm. been about this work since I was a fourth grader. Well, man, that's uh, good to know. So now you still reside in Philadelphia, correct? Correct. Correct. And uh, how are things going? I know there were, I've been in Philadelphia, and, uh, man, hey, it's a beautiful city and a lot of history there. And uh, how are things going there as far as systematically um, controlling of the system? You understand what I'm trying to say? Well, black Philadelphia isn't doing very well. We have one of the highest murder rates in the country at present. In addition to that, we are the number one most quickly gentrified city. We are the, uh, how do you say this, of all cities that are undergoing gentrification, Philadelphia is number one in the rate of that gentrification. We overtook San Francisco and Seattle for the first place. So Mm. blacks are being pushed out of the inner city of Philadelphia more than any other place in this country. And a lot of that has to do with the black bourgeoisie of Philadelphia. For those who don't know, the Boule, uh, Phi Beta Kappa, the secret society of black male elitist Negroes, was founded in the city of Philadelphia. We also have the largest black Masonic temple here and the second largest Masonic temple in the world. So Philadelphia has a lot of secret power, both white and Negro, and that secret power dominates the political and economic spectrum. Philadelphia is a city where you can't rise unless you're given permission to rise from either the black bourgeoisie or the white power structure. So if you look at me, for example, I would never be known around the world. My work would have been lost to history had it not been for brothers and sisters outside of Philadelphia recognizing Mm. the things that I was doing. It would have never been done in Philadelphia. Philadelphia knew what I was doing, but because I was not a Mason, I was not a Greek, I was not gay, I was not a part of any clique, and because of that, there was no introduction made. And in this city, someone needs to vouch for you in order for you to rise. So for me, I was uh, brought out outside of Philly and then welcomed back into Philadelphia, meaning that a lot of people didn't even know that I was from Philly. Even now, people are surprised to find out that this is where I was born, raised, and still live. Wow, wow. man, that is uh, mm. <laughs> Is that kind of common in certain uh, cities where there are concentrated blacks, or is that just, you know, something that's systematically? Philadelphia is probably an extreme example because this is America's first free black community. Um, It's one of the so-called more progressive cities. And by progressive, what I mean by that terminology is it's one of the cities where the elitist Negro has more progressively kept the masses of black people uh, politically disorganized and intellectually backward. That's what progress means to me. We do a better job of controlling our Negroes than do other cities. For example, if Michael Brown happened in Philadelphia, there would have been no riot. If Freddie Gray happened in Philadelphia, there would have been no riot. The black Mm. churches and the black politicians 
and the black community leaders in this city, they run the black masses. So you look at a Baltimore, you look at a Ferguson, Missouri, the youth were not afraid. The working class Africans were not afraid. Even the young professionals were not afraid. That would Mm -hmm. not be the case here in Philadelphia. Now, I would say the youth are not afraid. They're not. But unfortunately, they have not been very well politicized in this city. But as far as the young black professionals, they are very much under the control of the black bourgeoisie. You know, most of them, uh, you wouldn't even think that. I mean, being in Oklahoma, I would think that – Philadelphia was kind of like an aggressive black city. I don't you know, and that's where I thought it was. I mean, that where you know, a lot of stuff. in the days of Georgie Woods, you know, and other communities, mm-hmm. Cecil B. Moore. You know, mm-hmm. go back to the '60s. We had a very progressive Black Panther move, uh, movement, very progressive Black Arts movement. Yes, it was once that, but in the post Dr. King assassination era, Philadelphia has become a bastion. For black bourgeoisie control. Mm. Wow. So what can what can they do up there in Philadelphia to change the narrative of that image? Is it is it is it too late, or is it something that you got to work on? Well, with respect to that question, I think the answer applies to Black America in general. And mm-hmm. for me, the two things that Black America must begin to do, and there's many things but two essential critical things that black America must begin to do to change the direction to which we're headed. And let me be clear, that direction is extermination, to change, to make a detour from that planned agenda of the United States government. We're going to have to get into education and economics. Education Mm -hmm. is about preparing the children in the art of leadership and community development. Economics, is the ability to build community infrastructure and employ members of your own community. See, one, one of the reasons why black people have more coons and more sellouts amongst us nationally than any other group is because we're the only group that does not systematically employ and empower our own. Chinese yeah. employ and empower their own. Mexicans mm-hmm. employ and empower their own. Jews, Anglo-Saxons, East Indians, Latino, they employ and empower their own systematically, not just a few jobs here and a few jobs there, but systematically the youth of every other ethnic community in this country can go to their own people for an opportunity. Blacks cannot do that. In fact, we're probably the only people in America who does not offer opportunities and resources to their own. That's why it's so easy for our young people to turn their back on us. It's so easy for our older people to turn their back on us because a community that is not self-sustaining is a community without respect. Mm. And, and, and Dr. Umar, don't you think that also the reason that we are having such a hard time coming together and having that village and, and helping one another as we did in the past, this government seems to systematically tear us apart mentally as far as not giving us the same opportunities. You know, Bobby always says, you know, black folk, we need to stop putting our hands out and we need to start helping each other and and learning the basics. Young people now, it's hard to find a young person that even knows how to change a tire on a car. But until, do you think that, I mean, what can we do as a people to bring that, that, togetherness again 
and and still fight that that system that's in place to keep us to keep us oppressed, to keep us down, not giving us Without the same opportunity. The government has an extermination agenda. We know that. The problem mm-hmm. is black America has no agenda at all. Right mm-hmm. now, this is probably the first time in 400 years, which we just commemorated two weeks ago, August 21st at Nat Turner Land in Virginia. But this is probably the first time in 400 years that black America is without an undisputed identified leader. You don't have that. That is good and it is bad. It is good because for the first time, the grassroots is able to put forth leadership that it selects itself, leadership that is uncompromising, authentic, visionary, and sincere. That's the good side. The not-so-good side is that the government is also aware that black America right now has a leadership vacuum. And the reason black America has a leadership vacuum is twofold. On the one hand, the wave of police genocide that capped black America during the Obama years exposed traditional black leaders such as Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, the Congressional Black Caucus, the NAACP, the Urban League, as having no solutions for us. So ironically, police genocide exposed the ineffectiveness of black leadership. So the Reverend Al Sharpton was disinvited from Baltimore. He was disinvited from Charleston, South Carolina, after the murder of Walter Scott. Black America wanted nothing to do with him because he had no solution. See, praying and voting does not stop police from killing black people. So the police Mm. genocide exposed the fact that the only two weapons that the black bourgeoisie has to offer poor blacks is votes and prayers, and neither one are sufficient to end police genocide. That's how the traditional black leadership cartel was outed. The problem for the white power structure, there are no black bourgeoisies in America that can capture the face and the attention of the black youth. See, this is the first time you don't have a black person. Michael Eric Dyson can't hold their attention. Mark Lamont Hill can't hold their attention. Cornell right. Young can't hold their attention. Roland Martin can't hold anybody's attention. They don't have anyone that they can put out there and have the youth follow. Because of that, you are seeing the rise of the black athlete and entertainer mm-hmm. as now being the spokesman. The government is now using the people our children love to now be their spokesperson. It's effective, but it's also dangerous. And it's effective because they listen to the rappers. They love the athletes. So if you choose rappers and athletes to be the new leaders, they can continue to keep the youth dumb, deaf, and blind. But it's also dangerous because someone like Dr. Umar Johnson will come along and expose the rappers and athletes as coons as well, no different than the leaders that we outed. I'm simply saying that we're going to have to go to war with our athletes and entertainers. They're going to have to be exposed as the new coons. Ah, new coons. And that's what it is. You know, when you have a bunch of uh, bourgeois, what I call bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie. uh, Negroes and stuff who are out here cooning and stuff Mm -hmm. who are afraid to talk to a homeless person, a black homeless person or holding up that Trump sign, the only little black spot behind it. Yeah, and all of that kind of stuff. And they are, they see, when I always say when uh, Negroes get $2 past bus fare, Mm. you know, they think that they have really arrived and, you know, they separate themselves and they, some of them were born in the hood, you know, raised in the hood, 
and then they don't even know they don't go back to the hood. That's right. You know, they don't know their friends. Or they do not socialize our children to be loyal to community. Once again, just like we're the only ethnic group that does not employ its own, we're also the only ethnic group that does not socialize its children to be loyal to its community. When you're raised in the Chinese American community, you're taught loyalty. Race first. When you're raised in an East Indian community, you're taught loyalty. Race first. When you're raised in an African American Negro community, you're taught to be loyal to Jesus, loyal to Muhammad, loyal to the United States government, loyal to your fraternity, loyal to your sorority, loyal to your Masonic lodge. And I'm not I don't have anything against the Masons. I got heroes who are Masons, but my point is these elitist black organizations who ain't really doing anything of significance to black folk, they are the ones that hold our loyalty. Being loyal to the black community has not been a priority for any of us since the assassination of Dr. King. We have been 51 years without a sustained mass comprehensive movement for political, economic, or social change by black folk. And that's dangerous because it means that our children are one of the first generations of black children who, number one, not only did not experience the black power struggle, but unlike myself, who was in my 40s, at least I had grandparents and uncles who lived through it. These children not only did not experience, they don't even know anyone who lived through it. So being proud to be black and standing up with a black power agenda, as far as they're concerned, that could have happened as long ago as did the building of the pyramids. Man, that's uh, you, that, you're so right on that, man. Because some of the young people, I had a guy the other day, and uh, I asked him. I said, "Hey, man, do you know uh, about Black Wall Street?" He couldn't tell me nothing. He was thirty something years old from Tulsa. From Tulsa, he born and raised here, and he could not tell me because I don't think we're educated enough, man. We don't have a lot of knowledge, mm-hmm. and those parents are not pushing information down to their children inside those homes, you know, the village has been destroyed. And it's like uh, technology has made a lot of younger people not, you know, they're not social, you know, they're not social at all. Dr. King prophesied that, by the way, the good Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was the last leader of the mass movement by black folks. uh, He prophesied that the evolution of technology would serve to separate black people more effectively. Now we don't have to come under the same roof to meet. We can do a teleconference. Now yes. we don't have to come face to face to meet. We can do Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, MySpace. So the one thing that black people need to learn how to do, which is work together as one, we not, we not only do not know how to do that, we're now, it's popular not to do that because every network that we're a part of does not require face-to-face dialogue and exchange. For example, YouTube killed the study group in the black community. If you remember, going from the 60s all the way up to Y2K, the study group was the same. Right here in Philadelphia, for me, being a member of the UNIA, the Marcus Garvey movement, we had a study group once a night, okay? That's where we learned our Garveyism. Well, guess what? Once YouTube came on the scene, the study groups across the country have died. And what people need to understand about the study group was that they served to help us get to know one another. They served to help us forge a collective consciousness. The study group also helped the leaders pick out the people who they could trust 
because when you're studying together and meeting on a regular basis with the free exchange of energy and ideas, you can begin to figure people out. So the study group was a very effective and necessary aspect of military science and black organizational science. It's dead now. Mm-hmm. It is. It, it most definitely yeah. is. You know, mm-hmm. that information needs to go down, go back mm-hmm. down. Because, mm-hmm. see, I think African-Americans, uh, as what they call us, uh, <clears throat> I think that uh, we just don't have enough today's knowledge. If some of the older generation have died off, these kids are growing up just not knowing. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a, but they are our products, though. See, the yeah, children were created by the community. Not even their parents exclusively can be blamed. The black community is totally responsible for the gangster rap generation. We're mm-hmm. totally responsible for the black-on-black crime rates that are sweeping the inner cities. We're totally responsible for the single mothers and the, te- and the teenage parents. Team. Yes, the government introduced all of those problems I just named. But mm-hmm. we have not sought to do anything to address those problems. So although we did not create them, we are totally guilty of not addressing them. A minute ago, you mentioned Black Wall Street. Well, guess mm-hmm. what? That's the solution. Black Wall Street, which is just a metaphor for the African village. Black Wall Street and the African village are one in the same. That means what? A self-sustaining Black community that educates its own, employs its own, invests in its own. What are the four major institutions of any community? A bank to invest in the community, a supermarket to feed the life of the community, a school to educate the youth of the community, and a hospital to save the lives of those in your community. You can name a black community in America right now including the middle-class bourgeoisie communities, you can't name one of them that has all four of those essential institutions owned by black people within the same town. And that is embarrassing. And the reason it's embarrassing is because we are a $2 trillion people, $2 trillion. We spend $2 billion on Jordans every year, $4 billion on alcohol, $1 billion on McDonald's, Nearly mm. $20 billion on weed and perms. We buy twice the Mercedes Benzes sold in America than white folks, although we have less than a third of white America's wealth. So we have to look at ourselves because we as a people don't care enough about the future of our community, and we definitely don't care about the children. I say it all the time. I should have never had to write Psychoacademic Holocaust. I should have never had to write the work, the book I'm working on now, Black Parent Advocate. I should have never had to become a school psychologist. Why not? Because the black community should have its own schools. You mean to tell me only one out of every four black boy graduates in this country? Two out of every four will end up in prison? Three out of every four will end up on psychiatric medication? Seven out of ten will be referred for special education? At least three out of eight will be arrested in school for some ridiculous offense that didn't even require handcuffs. But yet and still, we have almost no independent schools in this country. White folks don't care about black children, but neither do black people. Mm. Wow, that's scary, man. That's, that's real scary to, you know, come up, you know, and, and that's reality. And we keep on. asking, how do we change this? How do we change this? How do we change this? That's always you got to change question. the mindset. It all begins in the mind. 
people used to come up to me when we started raising the money for FDMG, and they would say, Dr. Umar, why are you about to put $750,000 into a school? You need to put that into jobs. You need to put that into weapons so we can build community defense. You need to put that into businesses to hire people. And I said, stop. I could put that $750,000 into businesses right now. Those businesses will be defunct within a year. Why? Because black people think white people's ice is colder. Those yeah. businesses will be out of business in a year because y'all will still buy white. If I buy weapons for community defense, y'all be shooting and killing each other in three months because we suffer from the HNIC syndrome. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to participate in the freedom struggle just as long as they're the ones calling the shots. So right. until, you, until you change the mindset of the mm-hmm. American Negro, You don't change nothing else about us. Before there can be an economic revolution, political revolution, spiritual revolution, social revolution, academic revolution, there must be a psychological revolution. Dr. Carter G. Woodson, the father of black history, said what? Mm -hmm. When you control a man's thinking, you don't have to worry about his actions. You don't have to tell him to go to the back door. He'll go to the back door without being told Mm -hmm. because the nature of your control over his mind has made itself. And he said when he gets to the back door, if there is no door, he will make one to walk out of. Mm -hmm. Until we liberate the thinking of the African, we liberate nothing else. The Honorable Marcus Garvey said what? Don't take the kinks out of your hair. Take the kinks out of your mind. Mm. That is so (laughs) true. Well, how do you feel about these black cities like Atlanta and D.C. and where it's up? concentrated blacks just everywhere like chocolate cities and all this do you think uh there's any type of uh growth you know as far as awareness there's growth from a capitalist perspective but there's not growth from an africanist perspective and what Mm -hmm. i mean by that if you go to atlanta i was just there the day before yesterday and i love atlanta very strong dr umar support city you have Mm -hmm. a strong black middle class and the black middle class is doing well. But right next door to the black middle class is black poverty. Black poverty. Hundreds of thousands of black people in Atlanta struggling, suffering, homeless, no job. So, yes, the black middle class is doing well, but it's not Africanist because there is no system in place by the black bourgeoisie of Atlanta, D.C., Philadelphia, or elsewhere to reach back and help our less fortunate brothers and sisters. See, in our culture, as African people, in our culture, we do not judge success by the few who made it. See, that's European, because European culture is based on individualism. So they'll say, look at Oprah Winfrey, look at Tyler Perry, look at LeBron James. You guys are doing better because a handful of Negroes are doing better. That's not African. As African, we look at what is the general quality of life for most of our people. What is the general quality of life for most of our people? To show, for example, there was an article that I read the other day. You okay. said America has just created 100 new black millionaires. That's not progress for black people. That's progress for those 100. There's 50 million of us. There must right. be a program to employ and educate the race, not a whole bunch of bougie individuals. Mm-hmm. That's so true right that's there. You know, true. that's mm-hmm. so true. 
Man, we sell out, man. We we get a couple of dollars, we just start selling out, and we forget our history, where we come from, the nature, why it's even possible. Those who died before us, and uh, man, it's uh, it's bad. It's bad. Well, the because only these... difference between slavery and now is in slavery, the white man forcibly sold you to other white men. In today's America, you voluntarily. Sell your soul to other white men. Mm-hmm. That's right. We simply right. barter ourselves, and because they no longer have a need to own you, they simply lease you. They will lease you to exploit your athletic talent. They will lease you to exploit your intellectual talent. They will lease you to exploit your physical talent, and then they throw you back to the ghetto. So they still, it's, it's the same system in place. It's just that the names. And the system looks different, but it still operates the same. For example, mm. most black boys want to be what when they grow up? Athletes or entertainers. Rap, well, LeBron rap. James, as wealthy as he is, his value is based on his what? Physical output. So if LeBron James's value is based on his physical output, and if Tyler Perry's value is based on how much money he can earn, how are they qualitatively? Not quantitatively, because they make way more money than our ancestors did, but qualitatively, how are they any different from the blacks who were forced to work the fields? Were our ancestors worth not determined by the amount of money they could earn for the slave system? So how was LeBron any different when his amount of worth is the same way determined by how much he can earn for the slave system, the NBA? That's the only difference is he's getting paid. He's getting paid. Mm-hmm. He's getting paid. But you still ain't got no freedom. You still can't speak up for your people. You still can't spend your money for the people. You got rappers with 20 cars in their in, in, in uh, parking lot. 20 yep. cars. But you that, that, come from a, a ghetto without a single black school in it. You come from a ghetto without a single black bank in it. You come from a ghetto, okay, without a single black supermarket in it. But you got 20 cars. You know why he got 20 cars? Because every celebrity knows, every black celebrity knows that the white power structure frowns upon black folk with money who try to look out for other black folks, mm-hmm. which is why most of them do almost nothing for their own people because they know the cost of that can be economic devastation. That's why mm-hmm. Bill Cosby's sitting in the prison right now, sabotaged yep. by a bunch of ugly white girls because he wanted mm-hmm. to buy a major network, so they called all mm-hmm. these white girls yep. together that he dealt with. He should have never dealt with. Right. Black men need to learn how to leave white girls alone, and they destroyed mm-hmm. that man. This is the number one black TV star in American history. If it was no Bill Cosby, there would have been no Richard Pryor. No Bill Cosby, there would have been no Eddie Murphy. Bill Cosby was the first one to do that. And look yeah, at him was. now. Destroyed because mm-hmm. he don't know how to leave white women alone. Mm-hmm. Some ugly white women. <laughs> ugly white women. Nasty, yeah. nasty white girls. There's nasty, ugly white That's women right. destroyed him. Yeah, you know, and, and he gave to a lot of HBCUs. And oh, man. He donated. Yes, he did. And then Spellman had the nerve to return the unused money from the $20 million that him and his wife gave, the the largest single private donation in HBCU history, okay, and they returned the unspent money. If I was Camille Cosby, I would have called Spellman up, and I have nothing but respect for Spellman, even though it was founded by the Rockefellers, the same family that invented AIDS. But nonetheless, okay, I would have called Spellman up, and I would have said, you're not going to give me the change and the leftovers. Since you want to advertise to white folks how much you want to distance yourself from me and my husband, give me my whole $20 million back. 
but you yeah, don't spend right. fifteen million and then say you're going to give back the five. If you want to give the money back, give it all back, not the mm-hmm. leftover change. That's what I would have did if I was them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would have did the same thing. Yep. Yep. Showing off the white folks. We love yeah. to do that too. We I was love to do that. Yep. And when the Bill yep. Cosby situation went down, listen, I'm not expect I'm not asking nobody to lie in public. If you believe Bill Cosby was guilty, so be it. I'm not going to ask you to lie in public. But what I can expect you to do as a member of this race is when you are asked to cast doubt on any member of the race, you simply have no comment. See, I'm not asking you to lie, but I'm asking you to be honorable. With all mm-hmm. due respect, I'm choosing not to comment on that situation. But these mm-hmm. Negroes didn't do that. Every Negro, they stuck a mic in their mouth, felt the need to distance themselves from Bill Cosby to make sure white they folks considered them good Negroes so they can get mm-hmm. some more work in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They ran from him. Mm-hmm. It sure did. Yeah. They sure did. Where is that now? He's sitting down up in prison right now. Mm -hmm. Sick. So sick and so Mm -hmm. sad. Sad because Bill Cosby requires two aides to do almost anything for himself. He needs Mm -hmm. two aides to go to the bathroom, two aides to get dressed, two aides to get put in the bed because he's legally blind. Mm -hmm. He's legally blind. And he doesn't even want his wife to go up there and visit him because he don't want her to see him in that situation. What they did to that man is absolutely wrong. Convicted with no evidence. All hearsay, a case that was previously thrown out mm-hmm. and was re-submitted uh, one day, one day, less than 24 hours before the statute of limitations expired. Mm. That is so That's bad. That's how they do. That's how they do. Mm-hmm. Well, the system is like when they're here. They're going to get you unless we unite. See, mm-hmm. African proverb, sticks in a bundle are unbreakable. You could break any stick by itself. But you put them bricks in a stack, you can't get to them. The problem with us, because we are a disorganized people, the Honorable Marcus Garvey said what? The greatest weapon used against the Negro is disorganization. Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael said what? If you organize a little, you get a little done. If you organize some, you get some done. But if you don't organize at all, you don't get anything done. Let's look at black America. Black teachers are not organized. Black police are not organized. They're organized with the white police. They're organized with the white teachers, but they're not organized by themselves. Black parents are not organized. Black men are not organized. Black youth are not organized. We are totally at the mercy of whatever our oppressors want to do to us because we are not organized. And the number one reason we are not organized is because we have so much contempt and self-hatred with one another that you can't get 20 black folks to come into the same room and agree on what kind of coffee to drink. That's right. That's true. We talk about that all the time, Mm -hmm. that, that hate. Yeah. That hate and division that we have in our communities, and we just don't like you because just because. Yeah, and that's one thing that and the we white community has got as intellectual analysis. That's how we get away mm-hmm. with it because we'll say, "Well, I hear what the brother's saying, but I disagree because of da da da." I hear what the mm-hmm. sister's saying, but I disagree because of da da da. And we never mm-hmm. get around to getting any work done because everybody feels like they have to look smarter than the next person, and the only way they can do that is by poking holes in what the other person is trying to do. Wisdom is not in the information. Wisdom is in the application. See, the world is filled with knowledgeable people, but the world is not filled with practical people. And the black community has all types of intellectual masturbators. They're all in the black conscious community. They know everything but they have done nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, now, recently, you know, I've been following you and uh, watching you on various different platforms, man. I saw you on Sway, 
you know, mm-hmm. Sway Show and uh, Breakfast Club mm-hmm. and uh, Tom Joyner, Tom Joyner, all of Best these platforms, man, mm-hmm. you you just everywhere. Real Housewives of Atlanta. But the one that I really picked out, and I want to applaud you for holding your own, was the Roland Martin Show. Man, you mm-hmm. held your own on that one, bro. You know, and yes, sir. Uh, that was that was very disrespectful what Roland attempted to do. I had been on his show three times before that, and he mm-hmm. never demonstrated any disrespect. I believe that the motive behind that, uh, uh, what you want to call that, uh, that uh, mm-hmm. it's a jumping name for episode, mm-hmm. motivated by the fact that when I did the last break, I had just did the Breakfast Club interview a week before. And it was mm-hmm. the hottest thing on the internet, like hotter yeah. than anything. Everybody was sharing it. I mean, every time I go on the breakfast club, it goes viral anyway. And mm-hmm. I think Roland had gotten jealous at the amount of love and support and views that the interview was getting. So he took it upon himself to be the person to try to poke the air out of my balloon. That's what that was about. Everybody mm-hmm. singing his praises. I'm going to bring them back down to earth. And he ended up exposing himself, making himself look like a clown. I mean, you got me on national TV arguing with another black woman about why black men should marry black women. That is insane. I that saw is it in, insane. <laughs> and the committee tried to get on you too. Those three people that were there, they were trying to ride you as well. And but well, you he held set him up to do that. He set him up yeah. to do that. Uh, you held him it came out later. He had a white girlfriend, I believe. Somebody sent me a picture of him and his white girlfriend. The other mm-hmm. brother was okay, though. The lawyer, he was all yeah. right. He, he, he maintained his poise. But Lauren and Eugene and Roland, I oh. mean, three coons in a pod. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. And ultimately, he basically sabotaged himself because his show yeah. was canceled by the end of the year. And mm-hmm. I believe that was due in no small part to the fact that a lot of my supporters who are News One Now viewers, stopped watching him. I got so many text messages and emails from elders and professionals and young black folks who say, yo, I used to watch him every morning. But after what he pulled with you, I'm not watching him anymore. And by the end of the year, his show was off. Yeah, I saw that. You know, I've seen that <laughs> that that segment several times. I analyzed it, not count. <laughs> yeah, I analyzed I've seen it a few times. Yeah. That in the Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. Now, the Breakfast Club was a whole different uh, yeah, interview. They pretty, they pretty, they pretty. I like the Breakfast Club because they allow me to get the content out, and they allow people to make their own opinion of it, as opposed to Roland Martin who wants to uh, control the way in which the content comes out. You know, mm-hmm. by his own twisted narrative and interpretations and uh, distorted questioning. So, with the Breakfast Club, is always love when I go up there. Now, I ain't been up. We missed the interview I should have did last summer because I normally go every summer, so I don't Mm -hmm. know if they got the word that they can't bring me on there no more because those Breakfast Club interviews, they go more viral than anybody else they interview, rappers included. Like, they really go viral when I do them, so I don't know why I ain't been back yet with the type of flips and spins that it get, but at the end of the day, it's a white platform. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a white platform and um, also I do control what I say because I want to make sure it gets you know, please. Mm-hmm. So you're mm-hmm. saying the Breakfast Club is a white platform? I believe it is. Now, I, I do see they have the revolt sign, so maybe revolt is Sean Puffy Combs, so maybe mm-hmm. they are on his platform now. I don't want to speak inaccurately about the situation, um, so mm-hmm. maybe they are under Puff, you know, but be that as it may, it's still a mainstream platform, 
that yeah. probably yeah. really doesn't value the unbridled revolutionary black voice because that's what I represent. There's few other black men with doctor degrees who tell the truth about the racial situation the way that I do. I can't name one of them. None of your mainstream scholars tell the truth the way that I, I do because they work at white universities, want to keep their jobs at white universities. Mm-hmm. I don't operate in those constraints. So when I speak, yeah. I tell the truth. And black people yeah. rely on me to do that, which is why I will never sacrifice my soul or my tongue for a paycheck. Yeah. Well, one thing about this platform you're on right now, Dr. Umar, is the fact that the building is owned by black and uh, uh, the business is black, black, blackity black, everything. And and that's our motto. We tell Mm -hmm. our stories our way. And uh, we like to have people like yourself on Mm -hmm. this show to give that narrative of truth. Yeah. You know, as long as you're and talking enlightenment. truth mm-hmm. and enlightenment and, hey, just telling it like it really is, then, you know, that's what it's about. Now, Dr. Umar, are you still giving those um, parent teleconferences, the, I think, Tuesday morning? Occasionally. Occasionally. I just did one uh, this past Saturday in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, the morning of the lecture that I did at the fourth annual Nashville Soul Day. Shout out to the Nashville Soul Movement who brought me down there. It was a beautiful event. So I do them occasionally. I don't do them as much anymore because ever since the acquisition of the school, I've been much more busy these days. Uh, Mm -hmm. But for parents and listeners who have questions about their children, uh, they can schedule consultations with me. And they can do that by emailing me at drumarjohnson at yahoo.com. They can also text message me at 215-989-9858. Again, 215-989-9858. They can also call the 800 number, which is 8444-DR-UMAR. That's 8444-DR-UMAR. So I still do the private ones. I just don't do the free public ones as much because of a lack of time. Okay. Well, that's good, least. You know, yeah. you can call in and email and, and yeah. still get that good guidance from now, you. Now, Dr. Umar, you know, uh, there's been some controversy about where you got your degrees from. Now, we already know you got good degrees, doctor of clinical psychology yep. and certified school psychologists mm-hmm. and all of that. Can you tell this audience and you guys listen up? This man is legit mm-hmm. with it and where your background comes from. Um. I think I already satisfied that about three years ago. And I'm going to tell you why I say that. Okay. Um, Around 2016, I got a phone call from the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, which is the institution where I earned my doctorate degree. And the registrar's office called me and they asked me, and this was intensified again after the Roland Martin interview, because as you remember, one of the um, insinuations he made was that I didn't have a doctorate degree. So, after that interview, but even before that, but especially after the Roland Martin interview, which I think was 17 or 18, 17, I guess, um, mm-hmm. the school called me and they said, we're getting hundreds of phone calls about your degree every week. We're not allowed to divulge any information about you without your permission. Can you give us permission to let these people know that you earned your degree from here in clinical psychology? I said, sure. They asked me before, but I said no because I'm of the opinion I don't have to prove anything to anybody, and my Mm -hmm. work speaks for itself. And I'm one of the only people in black consciousness 
with a legitimate doctorate degree anyway. So if you don't question nobody else, okay, why are you questioning me? So my thing was I told them no the first time. But after Roland Martin, they sought me out again and said, if you could just let us do this, it would stop a lot of these phone calls. So right after the Roland Martin interview, I gave them permission to let people know that I earned my degree and when I earned that degree. Well, guess what? Controversy obviously has not died, okay, with you asking me that, and respectfully so. And it's Mm -hmm. ridiculous. What it shows is that the controversy was never about the authenticity of my degree. Why do I say that? Because for the past three years, you can pick up the phone and call PCOM and find out if I got a doctor. So if you can pick up the phone and make one call, one call, and verify whether or not this man has that credential, why would it still be a controversy? It's still a controversy because the detractors were never interested in the truth. They knew I had the degrees. They were Mm. interested in the sensationalism. For example, the person who started it, the person who started the campaign, that I didn't have the degree, the campaign, that I was stealing the school money, had no intention of buying the school, the campaign, that I was not related to Frederick Douglass. He was right out of Philadelphia. And not only was he right out of Philadelphia, he was a former coworker of mine at a charter school where I served as school psychologist. In other words, the very person who knew my credentials is the very person who put out the lie that I didn't have any. So you might say, why did he do that? If he worked with you, why would he tell people that you didn't have these degrees? Because he wanted to be what I was. He published the book, it didn't go anywhere. He tried to start a speaking career, it didn't go anywhere. He started his doctoral program under Malefi Asante at Temple and African American Studies. It took him forever to finish. I became what he always wanted to be. And because of his jealousy, he started the campaign that I was not a minister. It came out of Philadelphia. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that's there what we actually go. Good example of, See, of black it came from home. It came from right here. Wow. Right there in Philadelphia. Hindsight is twenty twenty. With Mm -hmm. hindsight being twenty twenty, I wish I would have got ahead of it back then. The reason I ignored it because I said most people know this is ridiculous. I've been saving black kids for twenty years who don't know that. Okay, from California to Texas to Detroit, no one has saved more black children from special ed and ADHD and juvenile detention than me. I don't have to prove this, so I left it alone because I thought the truth was obvious. I didn't know black people were so thirsty for negativity that they would jump behind any negative campaign to destroy the character of someone who does a work that nobody else does. There is no other black person in this country that does what I do, and that is help parents save their children from the school to prison. Maybe we have schools, maybe we have principals, but who is helping parents outside the school, equipping them with the information that they need to go into that school and save their child. I don't know of another black person that does the work that I do. So I thought because of that, black people would say, leave him alone. He's off limits because the role that he occupies, nobody else is in it right now. But they didn't. They don't care. They didn't care about our kids. If they cared about our kids, they would have never said I was still in that school money unless they had proof because this man is trying to open up a school for our children. Something yep. none of y'all are trying to do. None of you are trying to do it. Mm-hmm. But guess what? Hate is stronger than love with Negroes, and they continued and continued, but that's why I was so grateful that God blessed us on February 7th for this year to buy that school, Frederick Douglass Martin Mm -hmm. Garvey Academy. We have four buildings. They are beautiful. They are modern. They just have to be repaired. The Frederick Douglass building, we have over 16 classrooms. We have a gigantic gymnasium. We have a lunchroom. We have a separate gym across the street. In In the Marcus Garvey building, we got 10 classrooms. We got a tech room. 
We have all the space we need. The whole block is ours. We don't share space with nobody. We got grass in the front, grass in the back, and we still got a fourth building to work with. By the time we are done, the Frederick Douglass Marcus Garvey Academy campus in Wilmington, Delaware, will be the central black organizing headquarters on the planet. Because one of the things I know traveling the world is that we seldom have our own meeting spaces. I can count on one hand the amount of places I've spoken at that were owned by black folks. On one hand, and I've spoken on every continent except Australia. I can't even give you five places I've been in that we own. So the acquisition of FDMG is significant, not just for the future of our children, it's significant for us as a people because you have to organize us. And you can only organize us if you have the facilities to do so. And we have the facilities that can easily accommodate over 1,000 Africans on any given day. Once we open up that school, the lights will never go out. But I do tell you this, everyone who spoke a bad word against the school, the school campaign, or myself will never be allowed in. They have a lifetime ban because it is very distasteful to work against something that's for the benefit of our children. It is very distasteful. So everybody who mm-hmm. negative, get negative interviews, put out negative blogs and posts and memes, no need to show up on grand opening day because you will mm-hmm. be promptly escorted out by security. Mm. Now, Dr. Umar, is there a going to be a tuition cost for the students that attend? Absolutely. It's an independent school, so it will be tuition. I don't know what that cost is, and I won't know until the school has been restored and all operating expenses have been accounted for. So I'm currently working on that. I will not have that number until it's closer to opening. I would like to keep the tuition at around $500 uh, mm-hmm. per month per child, which is very reasonable. Mm-hmm. And I do think I probably will be able to do that because we own the school outright. Uh, there's mm-hmm. no mortgage. It is ours. It is mm-hmm. ours. It is the property of the African race entrust to the Frederick Douglass Marcus Garvey Academy. So because we own it, you know, that's going to put us in a real good shape because we won't have to worry about factoring in a mortgage uh, with mm-hmm. the tuition. How many students are you thinking about being able to house in that facility? Well, we're going to start with second, third, and fourth grade. That's where okay. we're going to begin. In the final analysis, we're going to be preschool all the way to junior college because, again, mm-hmm. we have the space to do that. So the beauty is we have the space to do whatever we want to do. Being a former school principal myself, um, I do know that one of the challenges that principals come across is outgrowing the building that they're in. That's one of the biggest concerns of principals because you're going to grow as a school, especially if you're doing the right thing. We won't have to worry about growing because we have two schools right across the street from each other. And because Mm -hmm. we have two schools right across the street from each other, we may even begin the Girl Academy, the Anna Douglas and Amy Garvey Academy for Young African Princesses, we may be oh. able to begin teaching our young ladies sooner than expected. That was always a part of the FDMG program anyway. We always sought to include the girls once we got started with the boys. But because we have two separate schools, one of those schools could theoretically be the Girls Academy. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Man, great. That's yeah. a great thing. It's much needed uh, in our you know, our communities, mm-hmm. man, if more people could think about education mm-hmm. and educating boys and young men, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the curriculum that you're going to have there? I mean, what kind of classes are you going to have? I know it's not going to be traditional classes, probably, but what are you going to have? Well, you're required to teach your math, your science, your mm-hmm. language, your civics and history. I don't need to mention those. They're required. The FDMG curriculum hinges on six core curriculum, political and military science 
understanding the world that we live in, and understanding the art of self-defense. Our young men will be trained in weapons, violence, as well as silence. They're going to get it all. They will be masters of self-defense. And then we have our agricultural and agronomical curriculum. We actually visited one of the oldest continuously owned pieces of black farmland up in Indiana a couple of months ago. I'm going to be working with them and other black farmers around the country to create a program, an agricultural science program, that will make every young man at our school a walking, talking Dr. George Washington Parker. Then we also uh-huh. have an agronomical, okay, a dietary and nutritional program where we're going to teach our young men the art of how to eat to live, understanding the nutritional content, how to combine food to get the maximum nutritional benefit, understanding why you shouldn't eat sugar, caffeine, high fructose corn syrup, understanding that there's a cycle to eating that you shouldn't stuff your face all day, every day, every time you eat. You lose enzymes that are essential to the maintenance of life. We want to make sure they understand not only why you need to grow your own food, but how to eat that food after you have harvested it. There will also be a spiritual and astrological um, curriculum. Uh, the school itself will be an independent parochial academy, which means it has a dedicated religious component or spiritual component, and that will be the system of E5 which is the Yoruba system of spirituality, which I ascribe to. But not only will they be limited to E5, they will be taught Dogon, they will be taught Kemet, they will be taught Akan, they will get Nation of Islam, Rastafari, gods and herbs. I want to expose mm-hmm. our young men to all of the rich spiritual traditions that exist in the diaspora, but they understand that our foundation is E5. And then we will also have the science of the black man and the black woman teaching our young men how to be leaders, how to be fathers, how to be husbands, how to organize black people, which is the most difficult thing in the world. And the sixth science will be the science of finance and economy. They're going to understand the stock market. They're going to understand real estate. They're going to understand multinational investments. They will know how to do their own business plan. And when they graduate from our school, we will provide them with their first small business loan to get started. Mm. Can I send my grandbaby there? <laughs> yeah. There, there's, nothing, well, there's nothing in existence that comes close to the FDMG program. Mm. Number one has what we're about to do. And then uh-huh. people ask me, well, why you want to open up a school? Why don't you do a homeschool? I'm not doing no damn homeschool because mm-hmm. that's not my destiny. I wasn't sent here from my ancestors to settle for a homeschool. If you mm. want to do a little homeschool, go do a homeschool. That's not me. Dr. Umar Johnson's calling on his life is to build institutions. I am a nation builder, and a nation builder means we must build institutions. We can't keep settling for homeschools because, for me, that's a disgrace. Why is a $2 trillion people settling? A $2 trillion people has no business settling for homeschools. I'm not against homeschools. I think it is a good Band-Aid. But it's not a solution. And the reason it's not a solution is because the most important job of a school is not to teach. It is to socialize. That Mm -hmm. means the most important job of a school is to teach black boys how to work together for the benefit of the race. That's Mm -hmm. what they must be taught. If you've got a million black kids being educated in one million different homeschools, where is the unity coming from? Where is the collective consciousness coming from? That's not African. That's individualism. Africanism is bringing them kids under the same roof and raising them as a family. And that's why I'm building a school and not no damn home school. However, Mm -hmm. I do want to build a virtual school. A virtual school will allow children who can't physically be at FDNG 
to tap into the classroom by Mm -hmm. satellite, visually, where they can be in the class. They can see the teacher. They can see the classmates. They can follow the lesson, and the classmates and teachers can see them, much like they do in colleges now with the distant learning, which is very different from cyber school. Cyber school, you're not in the class. You're simply being taught through an electronic program. So I want to build a virtual school for the children who can't physically be there. But we are currently scouting land in Delaware to build a small dormitory so for parents who desperately need their sons at the school, not just in America. I'm a Pan-Africanist, but this is not just about America. This is about Africa. It's about South America. It's about the Caribbean. It's about Australia, Canada, and the U.K. It's about all of our children. And for parents around the world who want to send their sons to FD&G but can't afford to relocate, they'll be able to send them to us, and they can live with the brothers in the dormitory. That's the long-term goal. But that won't be ready for about five years. The immediate goal is to get the school open and ready for learning. I'm hoping August 21st, 2020, but if we got to push it to August 21st, 2021, so be it. At this point, it doesn't matter when it comes. I just need everybody to know it's coming. Mm-hmm. Now, how, what's the we process? We the building. The building yeah. is half yeah. the battle, and we own it. That's so that's it's it. a matter of when, not if. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Umar, how do you go about selecting your teachers? You know, what qualifications do they have? They're going to get interviewed. We have right now over 3,000 applications. Right now. Okay, I have wow. 3,000 resumes from across the world, which means I will have the – I will probably have the most historic – most historically diverse teaching staff in the history of independent schools in the world. And I'm doing my research right now because I believe the Frederick Douglass Marcus Garvey Academy is the first school in the modern history of African people where money came from every black community on earth to purchase it. I don't know of another school that was purchased by the people with money from Africans from every single continent and country. We may be the first ever in history to do that. Now, with regard to the teachers, there will be three interviews. There will be a cyber interview, okay? So I can see them and my team, we can see them and we'll interview them that way. And then when there will be a face-to-face interview for those who make that cut. So if you make the first cut, you have to come to FDMG and get interviewed. And then there will be a final round interview for us to finalize the staff that we're going to be choosing. Wow. Mm-hmm. You cannot That's be good. sexually confused. You cannot be dating an alien. If you're sexually mm-hmm. confused or dating anything other than an African, you cannot be a role model for our kids. Mm-hmm. So tra- you so must tra- be a Pan-Africanist. There can't be no Jesus. I don't mind if you're Christian, but if you got a white Jesus, you can't work in my school. We're trying mm-hmm. to change the consciousness. And so I have to really weed through those applications. I got to really weed through because I know that the FBI and the CIA and self-hating coons are going to try to uh, infiltrate my school through my staff. They're going to send somebody in whose job is going to be to try to destroy us from the inside. I already know that because an independent school is like an independent nation, and there's always spies working for the enemy. And we know that there's more Negro spies than any other group in history. Yeah, that's fine. We'll sell out each other in a minute. Yeah, in a hot minute. So, and they so will that- love to sell me out because I'll be the first one of my generation, of my generation, and the only one in the conscious community today to build an institution. I'm the first one to go from talk to real institution, yeah. especially within my age group. So there's a lot of jealousy and envy there because you're talking about the most requested scholar in the world, black, which I've been for 10 years. Nobody's even close, including your mainstream scholars. Nobody is asked 
to come and engage our people around the world as much as Dr. Umar Johnson. Nobody is even close to the amount of requests that I get to speak around the world, which is probably unprecedented. You'll probably have to go back to Marcus Garvey to get this type of love, which is somewhat of an unfair comparison because Dr. Khalid Abdul-Muhammad didn't have the benefit of social network. Neither did Dr. King, neither did Malcolm, neither did Huey, and I'm sure if they did, they would have probably exceeded me because I can't fill those shoes. But be that as it may, I have been able to benefit from social network with regard to the growth of my brand. With that being said, what I have done has been historic in these 10 years. It's unprecedented. With all that travel, with all of that travel, I've still managed to purchase two schools. That's beautiful. That's great. So, uh, Dr. Umar, and I'm just throwing this out there, so the school is predominantly for our people. What about biracial No, it's, it's exclusively for our people. It ain't predominantly for our people. Okay. It is exclusively for our they people. They can't be biracial and go there. Well, well biracial from my Pan-Africanist platform, which is the mm-hmm. same Pan-Africanist platform of the Honorable Marcus Garvey and every father of Pan-Africanism, we have always, every last one of us, from Patrice Lumuma to Kwame Nkrumah to Thomas Sankara to Amakal Cabral to Alexander Crumble to John Brown Rusworm to Hiri Garnett to Bishop Turner to Martin Delaney, we have always considered mixed-race Africans to be African. I don't have an issue with a biracial African at all. I have heroes yeah. that were biracial. Booker T. Washington was biracial. There's significant evidence to suggest that Nat Turner was the product of a rape by the slave master. So some of my greatest heroes were mixed race. I don't have an issue with mixed race African. I judge all Africans. Whether you got one black parent or two black parents, you judge by the same standard. And that is, do you think and act like an African? That's what matters. You can say Clarence Thomas. He's a blue, black, purple, unmixed Negro. And it's one of the right. biggest coons in American history. So I don't get caught up into she only got one black parent. Uh-uh. If your mother African or your father African, you African as long as you identify and uphold the honor of your race. Amen. Which is which Amen. is so important. Mm-hmm. So important. Well, hey, man, we're going to take a little short break right quick. We got Dr. Umar Johnson. Yes. You know, uh, on the air, and man, he's coming on with it. So, hey, stick around, and we're going to be right back, okay? All right. All right. We'll be right back, so stick around. And dial that number 646-716-5525 and get you right on the Bobby Eaton Show. That's what it's going to be. All right. Here we go. And this is what I want to do for us is um, we got to pay them back, (laughs) y'all. Hey, man. 
Listening to the Bobby Eaton Show with our very special guest, Dr. Omar Johnson. Oh, uh, yeah, we're enjoying ourselves right here with Dr. Umar, mm-hmm. and uh, he's just something to be heard. Something to be yeah. heard, and, and, and please remember, people out there, this is something we need to get behind as black folks. That's right. If you want to donate to this wonderful cause in the school that is going to do nothing but benefit us. Mm-hmm. All you got to do is just get that money order, send it on in to uh, uh, FDMG P.O. Box 9634. That's P.O. Box 9634, Wilmington, Delaware, and that zip code is 19809. You can also just go online to the Bobby Eaton Show, and we'll have that information on there also. Right, right. Dr. Umar, are you back on the air? How you doing? All is well. Well. Okay, great. I want to kind of like talk about this, the police, man. What are your views on policing and the police and the things that are going going around the country, all this mass shootings that are taking place that uh, young white men oh, are pick, white picking up, you know, <laughs> machine guns and just rapping off on people? How do you feel about all the policing and all this weaponry going on? Well, a couple points. One, when I look at the current climate of gun violence in America in general, and I compare it to great empires of the past, 
I would have to say that America is destined to destroy herself from within, as did all great empires. Most great empires in the past, they were destroyed from the inside. No outside Mm -hmm. army could destroy them. America is headed in the same direction because of the love of violence, because the love of the gun is a metaphor for the love of violence. America was born on violence, built on violence, it's maintained, and it will be destroyed through violence. So that's point number one. America will fall from within. The country is only 200 years old. It's a baby. It's a baby, yeah, it and it's going to fall soon, you know, because it loves violence so much that it's not willing to get it under control. And part of the reason it doesn't want to get it under control is because so many black people are being victimized by that violence. So a lot of this is in the service of African genocide. That's an, a, another one, a, another reason why. See, the reason America loves the right to bear arms is, number one, if every citizen in your country is armed, no foreign invader can ever destroy you. From that perspective, it was a brilliant move to include that amendment in the Bill of Rights, the right Mm -hmm. to bear arms, because anyone who wants to come into America, you ain't just got to worry about the military. In most countries, you don't have a right to bear arms, so you only have to worry about the military if you're going to invade. But if you're going to come into America, country of 500 million, you're going to have to face 500 million guns on top of what the military has. So it definitely protects and safeguards the country's borders without question. But the problem is it doesn't protect the lives of the people inside that country. Now, as far as police genocide goes, everybody knows what the solution is to that, which is why you've never heard it. The only thing that's going to stop police from killing black people is black people. It's the only thing that ever stopped the KKK from doing it. It's the only thing that ever stopped the different white organizations that wrecked terror in the black community from reconstruction to civil rights. What did the deacons of defense have to do in order to stop the senseless violence of the KKK down in Alabama and Louisiana? They had to face off with them. They had to face off with them. The Marcus Garvey African legionnaires, they had to face off with them. They had to face off with the police. They had to face off with the KKK. The Black Panthers had to face off with them. There, were, there is no nonviolent solution to police genocide. There is no democratic solution to police genocide. There is no religious solution to police genocide. The only way we're going to stop it is black men are going to have to say we had enough, and you're going to have to confront the police. What does that mean? It means mass casualties on each side. I would hate to see it. But I understand the white man, and I know the only way you get his attention is when his blood spills as quickly as yours. Mm-hmm. Or his money is spent. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. That's true. Yep. Now, how do you feel about boycotting, man? You know, boycotting black- can be effective, but black people don't have that kind of commitment to each other. See, we have gotten away from serious movements because, again, we haven't had one since the one Dr. King gave us. 51 years ago. May he rest in eternal peace. Since then, we've got hit with a whole bunch of one-day revolutions. Million Man March, one day. Al Sharpton marches, one day. Congressional Black Hawk, one day. Against police brutality, one day. Christmas, one day. Show me (laughs) any change that has ever been sustained after one day. But the reason you only get one day is because black leadership knows black folks don't have that type of commitment to themselves. You ain't going to get, but could you imagine if Dr. King was around today? 
Oh. And he tried to come into an inner city and get black folks to boycott public transportation for 381 days like they did in Montgomery. Could you imagine the type of pushback he would get from 21st century Negroes when he says you can't ride the buses in your city until we force them to desegregate or hire more black folks? Black folks would go off on Dr. King. We ain't interested in fighting for no black liberty. We don't care about that. See, black people have no problem with white supremacy. Let me be very clear about this. Black people are fine with white supremacy. They are fine with them killing our kids. They are fine with them miseducating our babies. They're fine with poor health care. They're fine with the jails being filled up with Negroes. We don't care. The only thing we care about is the position that white supremacy has given us within its hierarchy of oppression. As long as the white power structure gives me a good job and gives me a nice place to live, and gives my family a good education, my kids into a good school, I could give a damn about the other black folks. That's why we can't get nowhere, because we don't live in the community of we. We live in a community of me, myself, and I. Mm-hmm. You're right about that, though. Mm-hmm. That is- and that mindset is for the poor black as well as the rich black. Let me be clear. There's no difference between the thinking of a poor Negro and a rich one on matters of race. Neither one of them give a damn about the community. I want to be clear. It only looks like the poor black cares more because he talk all that community junk and saving black folks until he gets offered a job, until he gets elected to office, until he pastors a church. And then all that black liberation theology goes out the window. And why is that? It's easy to be a black activist when your ass is broke. It's always easy to scream black power and wave the red, black, and green flag when you ain't got nothing to lose. But what happens when a power structure makes you an offer you can't refuse? A job, a house, better education for your children. And them same Negroes who talk that black power junk will be on the other side defending the white man. That's why you got to study black folks before you work with them. I don't trust black folks just because they run up to me and say, Dr. Umar, I want to help you organize. Because the only reason I'm going to help you organize is because the white man ain't invited you to the table. The minute you get invited to that table, look what happens to you. Look at Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton was a grassroots activist. And the minute white folks started donating to the Black Action Network, he changed the name to the National Action Network. And you look at what he's doing now, he's doing so much stuff that ain't got nothing to do with saving black folks. He's been purchased for a price. And the cheapest thing to buy is a Negro leader, but they might as well sell them at the dollar store. Mm-hmm. Wow. How do you feel about now? We talk about this a lot over here because I just think that we need more real down home black media you know, sources because we're not mm-hmm. able to always get this type of message out there. How do you mm-hmm. feel about the black media black sources? media right now is a disgrace. And I say that because the first black newspaper was founded by a Pan-African, John Brown Russworm. Freedom's Journal, along with Samuel Cornish, 1830-1831, New York. And that, that periodical was published to do what? To educate and advocate. The purpose of the black media is to educate and advocate. When I look mm-hmm. at black media today, everything from social network to the blog talk shows to regular mainstream media to the magazines to the newspapers, I'm very disappointed because you know what I see? I see 85% of black media is dedicated to sensationalism, gossip, 
sports, entertainment, and white politics. I see very little attention being paid to black economics, mass incarceration, state of the black family. I see very little paid to that. The problems that affect black folks, you might get a good story on it once or twice a year. You might get a good story on the unemployment of black men and how that relates to mass incarceration and crime. You might get a good story on the homelessness of black folks maybe once or twice a year. You might get a good story on police genocide once or twice a year. But that those types of conversations should dominate black media, and they don't. Most of black media is sensationalized gossip, and that's a damn shame because at the very moment when this country is trying to bury our people, the one institution that can really help educate and organize and galvanize, which is black media, ain't interested in doing it. It's about the NBA draft. It's about the NFL Super Bowl. It's about Cardi B. It's about Jay-Z. It's about the BET Awards. It's about Serena and Venus. Mm-hmm. It's about who got elected. It's about making sure Barack Obama serve another term in office so he don't do anything for you again for four more years. It is not about dealing with the grassroots issue of black people. I would give black media collectively, because there's exceptions like your show. There's some exceptions. But collectively, I would give black media a D minus. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I, I You know, you said that, and I, I kind of agree because that's the problem yeah. with, you know, we don't have yeah. enough conscious black media who talk like we do on our show and the kind of topics we talk about. You don't have that. So we're the little guys, you know, we're the little small guys. And like you said, on a consistent basis. On a consistent basis, because right. That's, that's the thing. Systematically. Yes. Systematically. Yes. That's what's going to help our youth, mm-hmm. just like what Dr. Umar is trying to do. Taking our youth and consistently driving in their heads what you can do, how you can do it, when boom, you can boom, do it, boom, 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 so that you can be the one to hire your own people, people. so that you can be the one to, to be in charge and help your, your community and help your people. If we drill that over and over in our, into our youth, we might have a chance. And we to got to. We got to. And one of the big reasons they don't deal with the critical controversial issues that are relevant to black existence is because they're being financed. By politicians. So mm-hmm. if the politician is giving me $100,000 to advertise him for his campaign, I can't have Dr. Umar on there talking about how much he sold the people out already. I can have Dr. Umar on there talking about who's contributed to this politician's campaign, which clearly is going to render him ineffective once he gets in office. So what happens is they sell their soul through the advertisements because they have to protect the advertisers. And the main advertisers for a lot of black radio, magazine, and newspaper are who? White corporations and right. black politicians. White mm-hmm. corporations and black politicians. So we can't have Umar Johnson and they talking about how Walmart invested in prisons because he's going to make Walmart his upset. And Walmart is giving me a quarter million dollars a year to push them. So what happens <laughs> is they end up selling out in order to get their sponsorship. A black media outlet who's Sponsorship is predominantly coming from white folks, in my opinion. It meets the definition of being black media. You are white media in black face. That's true. Mm. That's true. Yep. Well, over here, I refuse to be sold out like that. I just yep. can't do it. I don't know. My, my dad worked too hard. Grandpa built this building here, and so I can't uh, afford to sell out like that. You know, it's... Uh, and I've had my challenges here on this show, Mark, you know, as far as, 
people wanting this and people wanting that and mm-hmm. wanting you to do this, but I refuse to sell my soul to yeah. the man. Yeah. And uh, that's why we have people like yourself on the show to, you know, to, to, to tell it like it is and what it we like need to is, do right. and how we need to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we can't be, what I've been told by people, particularly radio and TV, is that I present a very difficult and unique challenge for radio and TV in particular, and to a lesser extent, magazine and print media, because visual and audio media is in your face versus print, so it's much more effective and influential. I've been told the problem I present is I bring, I'm often the most listened to interview on a station that month. So I bring the viewers and the listeners. But on the flip side, I also piss off the advertisers the most that month. So the stations, they have to pick their poison. Like we get Dr. Umar. We know this is going to be one of our most called and listened to shows. But on the flip side, we also know it's going to be one of our most protested by our white sponsors. And so sometimes the station will say, okay, we would rather get his listenership than keep that contract. Others will say we would rather keep the contract than get his listenership. They would, ideally, they would like to have both, but they can't because my message does not allow them to benefit from my following and at the same time keep white folks happy. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been uh, cut off a show in the middle of a show because of some controversy or something like that? Uh, probably less than less, less than a handful. It's happened, but it's been less than a handful. Yeah. What and about normally a... they'll try to blame it on a technical difficulty? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Umar, which is why, which is why I try to adjust my message to the climate yeah. and content of a particular show. So, for example. When I went on News One Now, when I go on Time Turner, Ben Smith, Roland Martin, other types of uh, mainstream sort of uh, platforms, I don't mm-hmm. go in as hard as I would go in with you guys because your platform is more liberal than theirs. They're very much controlled and dominated by white folks. So if I don't bridle the message to some degree, it won't get heard. So if I go on a breakfast club and I do one of these interviews on a breakfast club, they'll never publish that. So I can toe the line, but I can't go past it. So I always, even when I speak at the university, the lecture I give at the university isn't the lecture I give at the church. I can be mm. a little bit more freer in the church than I can at the university. And the lecture mm. I give in the church ain't the one I can give in the community. If I'm at the community center, I can really stretch out. No whole mm. part. When I go to the church, I got to take it easy on white Jesus because some people will uh, misinterpret my criticism of white imagery with political or religious doctrine. I don't have a problem with Christianity. I got a problem with the images y'all are using. You see, so I always adjust my message to who I'm teaching. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Umar, were you able this year to do your uh, your tour, your unapologetically African tour over to uh, the motherland? No, not the college tour. I wasn't able to do it this year. I'm going to try to do it next summer. And once we get the school open, we're going to be doing several of them every year because we need to do them for our own students, but we also want to allow other African boys and girls to benefit from that tour. It's actually it's the thing that I love the most to do that college tour, college and consciousness tour, because we take them to different universities, but then we also take them to different historic and sacred sites of our people. So we'll go to Harriet Tubman's grave, Frederick Douglass' grave, Harriet Tubman House, 
great blacks are whack. Benjamin Banneker home, Matt Turner Lane. You know, places that they've never been and they never get a chance to go to again. So we'll do that, and then we'll go to the HBCU. Most HBCU tours only do colleges. They don't do the black experience. You do the black mm-hmm. experience plus college. So it's ext- And I'm the tour guide. So they're getting it straight from Dr. Umar, no filter. You know, it's life-changing. So um, I- I'm definitely uh, going to be doing one next spring. But what I'm working on for this fall and winter, I will announce I'm working on one for adults because I've had so many adults hit me up and say, Doc, I want to go on one. I mean, I'm past college. I'm not going to college, but that's just part of our history. I would like to visit these colleges and learn about how they got started and what they have to offer. And I want to go to Nat Turner land. I want to go to the great blacks in wax. I want to go to the Frederick Douglass home. You know, so I'm putting together a, it'll be a week long tour for 18 and older. It'll be for adults. So if somebody want to bring their wife, you know, wife want to bring the husband, bring the children. It could be for any age, but it'll be, you know, primarily for the adults, but we will allow some children. And this will be an opportunity for adults to just kick back and get that experience too, because a lot of people never got that growing up. They were never taken to these places. They never even knew that they were still being kept or that these things even happened. And it's our, it's our obligation to show them. So I'm working on them, working on the adult tour as well. Sounds good. Sounds good. Now I got another question for you. How, now this is a big topic. How do you feel about black men and black women relationships, man? You know, because I see a, a division starting to happen amongst the family. So black males and black females are not just coming together anymore. Like, and I see a lot of uh, dating outside their race starting to take place. How you feel about all that, man? Right. Well, it's all economically driven. Or should I say it's oh. predominantly economically driven. The black community was led by two-parent households until 1970. You can check the statistics. We were married through slavery. We were married through Reconstruction. We were married through Jim Crow. We were married through the Garvey movement. We were married through civil rights. We were married through black power. You don't see the rise of a single-parented, female-headed household until 1970. And that was delivered after they murdered King two years before. They decided to economically neutralize the black community so we could not fund another serious movement. Let me repeat that. They decided to economically neutralize the black community to make sure we could never fund another serious movement because most of the movements of the 60s, integrationists and nationalists, were funded by blacks, not the government. So what they did was they came into the inner cities and they took out the industrial building trade programs from the high schools. They took out carpentry. They took out plumbing. They mm-hmm. took out electric. They took out auto body. They took out welding. They took it out to make sure black men would no longer be equipped with the skills that pay the bills. If you remember, before 1980, they did not send everybody to college. College wasn't even talked about that much in the black community before 1980. After 1980, they would push college exclusively into the detriment of earning your building transplants. This was on purpose. And then they took out all of the industrial jobs. They deindustrialized the inner city. If you drive to Philadelphia now, you see the remains of corporate factory-type buildings. So many different factory jobs was in Philadelphia, Detroit, Michigan, probably even in Tulsa as well. That's where yeah. our grandfathers work. That's where our grandmoms work. They've now turned those factories into what? Drug rehabs and prisons. Where you yeah. used to work is now where you go to be incarcerated. You see? 
So they deindustrialized the black community. And then 1980, they dropped off the crack. So 1970, they made the black man economically irrelevant to the black woman. Let me say that one more time. Mm. This whole black on black thing is about making the black man economically irrelevant to the black woman. And then in the 1980s, they dropped off the crack and started sending black men to prison, which means the mother was at home alone. And then they came with the welfare. And let me be clear, welfare programs were not started in the 70s and 80s, okay, to help black women take care of the kids because the father was locked up. They could give a damn about the kids. Welfare programs, and they were around before the 70s and 80s, but they were intensified in the 70s and 80s because they wanted to make sure that a black woman did not join forces with her incarcerated man against the system of white supremacy. Let me say it again. The reason they gave the black woman food stamps and public housing and public medical care isn't because they cared about her or her kids. They did it to make sure she didn't unite with the black man against the white power structure. That's why they created welfare. And then in the 90s, Bill Clinton came with his crime bill, the most revolutionized mass incarceration plan since Reconstruction. You see, that's how they decimated the community. Listen, you will never solve black male-female relationship problems until you deal with the economics. If there is no finance, there will be no romance. You cannot tell a man to stay with your woman if the woman won't let him stay because he cannot pay the bills. That's exactly. You have to make him a livable wage earner. And that's why I hate these conversations about crime. What is their response to crime? Put more cops on the street, build more jails. Now, can you show me any criminology, sociology, psychology study that shows more cops and more prisons reduces crime? Have you ever read that anywhere? No, you haven't. So if we know more cops and more jails doesn't reduce crime, why aren't we putting that money into jobs and training for black men instead of hiring more white cops and building more white jails? Because America is not interested in helping the black man survive. America is only interested in the black man's elimination. Hmm. If black men are going to be saved, which means the black family is going to be saved, it must be saved by black people. Wow. That's very true. If you don't deal with the economic irrelevancy of the black man and the black woman's life, you'll never fix fix the black male-female relationship issue. Because we're the only men in this country who are out-earned and out-educated by our women. We're the That's only true. ones. The black mm-hmm. woman is the only woman who out-earns and out-educates a man because so many of our sisters have bought into the feminist narrative. They blame him for having been to jail. They blame him for not being able to get a job. They bought into the white man's Kool-Aid that says the reason your man can't make what you make, the reason you have the education you have, and the reason he can't stay out of jail is because he's an irresponsible Negro. But the truth of the matter is you designed the society in which he lives to destroy him. Listen, Mm. if I control the economics and the education of any community, I can make criminals out of anybody I want. Put me in charge of the European Jewish community and give me control of their schools and their jobs. Put me in charge of the Mexican community and give me control of their schools and their jobs. Put me in charge of the Chinese community and give me control of their schools and their jobs, not to mention their criminal justice system. 
Mm. And I'll make an inmate out of anybody I want. Criminals are not born. They are made by criminal communities. Yep. You're right. Mm-hmm. You're right about that. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. so. Which is because why right now we're in the midst of a political season where everybody's gearing up for the presidential season. And everybody's right. asking about Corey, Kamala, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden. Unfortunately, we live in the same city where our school is going to be. And mm. I'm telling people that I got three questions for all of them, and none of them are going to give me an answer. Question number one, what are you going to do about police genocide? None of them have an answer. Question number two, what are you going to do about black people having economic access to us? They don't have an answer. Number three, what are you going to do about mass incarceration? They don't have an answer. Number four, what are you going to do about gentrification? They don't have an answer. The problems that affect black people the most, none of your candidates, Republican or Democrat, have an answer. So I will not be casting a vote. Mm. Mm. My vote is not cheap. Some people got a cheap vote. See, when you walk into a store and the store don't have the type of food you want, you don't buy the food. You go find a store that got the food you got. And if you can't find it, you'll wait till you find the food you need. This is how Negroes do. When they go shopping for a president, they say, damn, none of these presidents are really what I want. But I've been told that if I don't vote, I'm disrespecting my ancestors. So I got to vote for somebody. Get the hell out of here. Your ancestors don't want you voting for people who ain't going to do nothing for you. That is a damn scare tactic invented by the black bourgeoisie to influence black folks to keep them in office after they've done nothing for you the previous four years. My vote is extremely important to me, and I only get it. I only get it when I have good reason to. Wow. Yeah, I'm speechless on that one. Yeah. Because I've always been a firm believer that, that it's especially this 2020 election coming up, we need to get out and drove. Well, let, let me ask you this. How do you feel about Trump, Dr. Umar? Well, Donald, listen, every president in American history, from George Washington to Abraham Lincoln to Barack Obama to, to Donald Trump, have been enemies of black folks. Not one of them has done anything significant to help us. I don't, we got to stop getting up and we got to stop getting caught up in personality. Donald Trump as a man is irrelevant. The president of the United States is an institution. It is not a personality. Donald Trump is an employee. He is not an employer. He takes orders, just like Barack Obama took orders, just like George Bush took orders, Bill Clinton took orders, George Bush took orders. You don't create your policy as president. You're told what to do. This ain't about Donald Trump. It is about the United States government as an institution that represents the will and intent of white folks. That's what it's about. We have to divorce ourselves from this political analysis of personalities. The personalities are irrelevant. It is the agenda, and that agenda is prepared before the president even takes office. Hmm. Donald Trump is doing what he was told to do. And the next president, whether it's Corey, Kamala, Bernie, or Joe, will do what they're told to do. This is why I'm not interested in black politicians either. I don't need no black president. I don't need no black mayor, no black governor, because they don't do nothing for us. And why don't they do anything for us? Because they're part of the Democratic Party. How can a black person who belongs to the Democratic Party, to whom they pledge loyalty, carry out a black agenda when you belong to a party that's racist? You see? So the only candidate that can do anything for black people would have to be an independent candidate. You get a couple of them. 
but you don't get many of them because most black people think they got to be a Democrat in order to win. That's how afraid we are. We think you got to have the white man's validation in order to get elected. And once you get his validation and you get his money, he owns your ass. That's why we don't have a free black politician in America. Not one of them is free. They talk mm. that black talk when they get around us. And soon when they get around the white folks, they dance to the tune. Are you not aware that there has been a direct inverse relationship between the amount of black politicians who get elected and the condition of black people? The more black people get put in office, the worse off we do. And that's why under Obama, we did the worst we did in 50 years. Under Barack Obama, every measure of black success went down. Everyone. Graduation went down. Business ownership went down. Mass incarceration went up. And everybody talking about how great of a president he was. If he was so great, why can't you give me one thing he did for black folks? I can give you three things he did for homosexuals. I can give you three things he did for illegal immigrants. I can give you three things he did for women. You can't give me one thing he did for black folks because Barack Obama was a white man's president, not a black man's president. And you know what's sad about it? We still can't see that even though he's out of office because black mm. people have a policy of falling in love with politicians. That's why we need <laughs> new political education. You don't fall in love with politicians. They are for sale. Politicians are commodities. You buy them, you trade them, you sell them. You don't fall in love with them. And that's why we can't never get nowhere because we got to like people in order to vote for them. Got to like them. That's what black people say. I'm going to vote for him because I like him. You don't know what his policies are. You don't know yep. what his agenda is. You, you don't right know about finance and his campaign. All you know is I like him. And because I like him, I'm going to vote for him. Now, the guy you don't like might be the one you need. The guy mm. you don't like might be the one you need, but he's not attractive. He's not charismatic. He ain't got no swag, and he tells black people what they want to hear, and they don't want to hear that. So the person you needed never gets in office, and the person you didn't need will always win. And a lot of that comes from the fact that we are under a black Christian ethos domination. The black community is run by the charismatic preacher. So when we go to vote, we take that, that church energy into the voting box, and then we vote for the most charismatic candidate. And unfortunately, charisma is often a blessing bestowed upon those who are least deserving of it. Mm. 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 So it's, a bla- it's really controlled by the black church. Is that what you're saying? The black church. And then the black church will tell you they're not political. Well, if you're not political, can you please tell me you're the first stop for the mayor's race? You're the first stop for the state senator's race? You're the first yep. stop for the state rep? The can- Why does every politician go to the church? When they yep. run it for office, if the church ain't political, because the church is the most political institution in the black community. Listen, if you in Chicago, let's take Chicago, Detroit, Philly, same thing in Tulsa. There's probably four black megachurches that control who gets in office every single term. Four black megachurches dictate the whole political machine, four of them. In predominantly black communities, there's only four black megachurches. Sometimes there's only two of them. Sometimes there's only one. And if you get the blessing of that pastor, he has the influence amongst his congregation to get you elected, even if you ain't got one single agenda item in store for black folks. That's how Mm. critical the black church is to the political process. And that's why you don't see black churches involved in anything relevant and meaningful to the black community, because they are financed by politicians to stay out the way. Can you name a church in Tulsa that's at the forefront? I didn't say involved. I said at the forefront of mass incarceration. 
fighting against that, at the forefront of miseducation, at the forefront of fighting against gentrification, at the forefront of fighting against police genocide. You can't name a church that's at the forefront of that at all. Why? Because they're being paid to stay out of the way. The black church has become the devil's workshop. Mm. So what can they, uh, the black church do to change all that? Is that to change the narrative? They're not going to change, not going not to change, change? because the black church is led by people who know that they won't be forced to do anything. And the black church is composed of people who think they got to wait on God to change everything. Let me say that again. The black church is led by people who know that they will never be forced to do anything. And the black church is comprised of people who are waiting for God to do everything. The best thing we can do for the black church is create an alternative institution that attracts the attention and energy of black people so that it puts irrelevant black churches out of business. You see, you have to do what the Honorable Marcus Garvey did. Marcus Garvey didn't build no church. Marcus Garvey built an organization that took care of every nation-building need of black people. So Marcus Garvey didn't have to fight the church. He didn't have to condemn the church. He didn't have to, you know, challenge the church. He simply created what black people needed. They still went to church, but they made sure they was out in time for Marcus Garvey's 3 o'clock meeting on Sunday. All we have to do is create what the people need. They will walk away from the church on their own. The problem is we don't have anything to compete with the church, and that's why we're losing. And I tell Mm -hmm. this to the black conscious brothers. I say, y'all keep talking about the church, but none of y'all have built an institution that can challenge the church. And until you stop talking and start building, the church will always have a dictatorship over black black loyalty and black votes. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. It's true. That's, that's true. That, that I mean, is, I mean, politicians. Hey, that is their first stop. That's the, what they're going to do is go to the black church and and, yep. and give me ten minutes. A black yep. church is the most dangerous, parasitic, exploitative, and economically wasteful institution in the black community because it is the only black institution that is guaranteed a certain percentage of our money and a certain amount of our time. Time and money are the two most important resources of any human being. They are essential. And the black church has a monopoly on black people's time and money, and it mm. does nothing with either one of them. Mm. Well, most of them now. I, I got I to give my, my church some play on that because we're involved not only in community but in education. But I kinda, I'm kind of going to ask Pastor about that. Mass incarceration and what we can do That's about right. police. That's right. Ask What are you yeah. doing to fight right. for change? I don't want to hear you with that no damn yeah. meetings because we love to go to some meetings. That's not yeah, the problem. Yeah. What are you yeah, doing right. to change the nature of the system? Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear about no damn meetings. You had lunch yeah. with the mayor. I don't give a damn about your Starbucks coffee. What are mm-hmm. you doing to change <laughs> right. the system? That's yes, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I understand that. I mean, because uh, here in Oklahoma, you know, we have the number one most incarcerated people female. people mm-hmm. in the country. And female. And female, you mm-hmm. know, more women incarcerated mm-hmm. here in Oklahoma than any other state. And I'm willing to bet I'm willing to bet you that when your black and white politicians run for office, nobody ever asks them, what is your program to employ ex offenders? And reduce mm-hmm. recidivism. What are you doing to make sure they don't go back to jail? Mm-hmm. Nobody mm-hmm. got an answer for that. You never hear about that because no, we don't. don't really care about our ex-offenders as a people. Out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. And because mm-hmm. we don't pay the ex-offender population anymore, any attention, 
it gets larger and larger and larger. Are you aware 95% of all black criminal cases are plea bargains? You know what that means? That means most black people in jail don't even belong in there. They're mm-hmm. in there because they couldn't afford adequate representation. Mm-hmm. What are we doing to change that? Mm-hmm. We have to change the nature of systems, and I don't see nobody doing that. Everybody is embracing the uh, Kim Kardashian model of social mm-hmm. justice, which mm-hmm. is find you one black woman over here and get her mm-hmm. out of jail, and find you one black grandmom over there and get her out of jail, and find mm-hmm. you one black man over here. Listen. That is not progress because you're not doing nothing to change the nature of the system. As soon as Kim Kardashian got those three black women out of prison, and yes, we are happy they're out, but as soon as she got them out, the spot that they vacated was immediately filled by another black woman. Why is Mm. it? As soon as those women went home, that spot was filled with another black woman. And do you know why? Because Kim Kardashian did nothing to change the system. Barack Obama, his last couple months in office, what did he do? He basically vacated the prison sentences of thousands of inmates, black and white. It wasn't just for black folks. It was mostly white folks who got out. But there was a lot of black folks who got out too. People were singing Barack Obama praises. Oh, my God, my nephew out, my brother out, my husband out. He had 10 years. Obama let him out after six months. Okay, I'm glad he's out. But that was not a solution. That was a band-aid. A band-aid only slows the bleeding. It doesn't stop it. So as soon as Obama let all those black men out of jail by commuting their sentence, guess what? The very next day, another black man took his plea. Don't bring me no band-aids. Bring me solutions. And the only thing that can be a solution is something that is targeted to the system that creates the injustice. And Mm -hmm. we are not focusing on systems. We are focusing on individual feel-good cases, which are distracting us from the fact that nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, wow, Dr. Umar. Oh, I can't wait for you to get we, here. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's hey, you're going down. Saturday, yeah, November yeah. 2nd, Greenwood right. Cultural Center, 4 p.m., doors at 2. All children, 17 and under, are free. Let me repeat that. 17 and under, they don't need a ticket. All they have to do is walk in. Elders, Mm. 65 and older, are also free. All they have Uh to do is walk in. If you are 18 to 64, you can get a ticket at drumarjohnson.com, or you can get a ticket at the door. You can pay at the door. You can pay online. Children and elders free. The same thing is true the very next year, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, only my second visit there. And that'll be at the 4502 Event Center, and that's also 4 o'clock. So both events, Saturday and Sunday, same time, 4 o'clock, doors at 2, children free, elders free, tickets online, drumarjohnson.com. We got space for vendors. There will be a Q&A session at the end. Make sure you bring your ticket with you so you can be entered in a Dr. Umar raffle to win a free gift package of everything that's there. It is going down, and we ain't just dealing with education. We're going to deal with mass incarceration, gentrification, extermination, pan-Africanism. I'm working on a big pan-African project right now that I can't discuss, but I will be bringing it out soon in the new year. Frederick Douglass and Marcus Garvey, we need to find a school in Tulsa. We need to open up an FDMG Tulsa. We need an FDMG OKC. This is not just about Wilmington, Delaware. It's about every black community, every black boy. We got to find a school in Black Wall Street and bring back that original energy that built Black Wall Street because what we did before, we can do again. Amen. 
That's right. Well, thank you, Doctor Umar. Oh. Great. Looking forward to have you. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna have you when you come to town. We're gonna have you come to the studio. Yes, sir. Let's let, let's do that in the studio the day of the event or maybe the day before. One of the yeah. two. Whenever you get to town and yeah, availability, right. we'll bring you in here. Okay, man. That's right. That's definitely, right. definitely. And I'm looking for some of that down south soul food. Oh, oh, you yeah. gonna get we, gonna we get got it. we got we got a few places where That's you can right. go and knock now, it Oklahoma's out. Oklahoma's kind of interesting. Like, are y'all considered Midwest or South? Because I know y'all on the border. Midwest. So, yeah. well, Midwest. Some people say Mid South. Yeah. You yeah. know, Mid-South. so we're, okay. we're okay. right in the middle of the United States. So yeah, it's one of those I kind of deals. Yeah. All you. right, bro. Hey, man. Good. Appreciate y'all. Yeah, a lot of All right. Take care. All right. All right, send them blessings. Oh, I right. just cannot wait. Oh, that's Dr. Umar Johnson, you talk about y'all. Some good, good wisdom, some good yeah, food. Good food, good wisdom. Yeah. Here on the Bobby Eaton Show, mm-hmm. you know. So we want you guys to participate. Come out to the Greenwood Cultural Center, mm-hmm. like you said, uh, November second. You know, doors open children. at two. Yep, doors open at two. Children from uh, young all the way up to seventeen are free, and our elders, sixty-eight and above. Sixty-five. Sixty-five and above. And sixty-five, 65 and above. Okay, sixty-five and above. Yeah, free. It's gonna be on and pop. It's gonna be on it. Oh, it's gonna be much fuller than what it was yeah, last time. Yeah, it was. It'll be a mm-hmm. lot of them. Yeah. Well, you've been on a Bobby Eaton show where we tell our stories our way every day and Friday, mm-hmm. six p.m. Central Standard Time. Saturdays, what, 12 to 2? Yep, noon to 2. And don't Boy. forget tomorrow to tune in because we got the Juice. Juice Radio Show. Doing, that's right, young people doing radio. That's where it go. Mm-hmm. All right, until the next time, we want you to have a good one, okay? It's time for the Bobby Eaton Show. Giving yeah. you information you right. want to know. Figuring right. out issues it's affecting us on and. Right. You know, it'll be, uh, it's so good. Hey, this is your show. <laughs> 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 All right, stay blessed, y'all.